This is the Escape the Zoo Podcast. With your host, Daniel Clark. Hello. Welcome back to the Escape the Zoo Podcast, where we talk everything wildlife. Today, we actually have two guests, Amber Jackson and Emily Hazelwood, who are marine scientists, explorers, and entrepreneurs. Founders of the certified, woman-owned, marine environmental consulting firm, Blue Latitudes, we talk about their program, Rigs to Reefs, where offshore oil platforms that are no longer being used by oil companies are modified so that they can continue to support marine life as artificial reefs. It's a really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy. So without further ado, here it is, my chat with Amber Jackson and Emily Hazelwood. Well, Amber and Emily, thanks so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. I love the work that you guys are doing and are super appreciative of you guys taking the time to talk. Sure. We're stoked to be here. Thanks for having us. Of course. I wanted to start with a quote that I saw on your website that says, Blue Latitudes brings attention to a misunderstood and controversial issue that warrants further study and analysis. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to have on your website showing that the work that you guys do is somewhat controversial or misunderstood in the conservation space. And I just want to see if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, of course. Well, the thing is, our organization, we promote um, converting offshore some offshore oil platforms into artificial reefs. So already that comes across as save the oil platforms, which is not the same as save the whales. So already it's a little bit more of a complicated um, question that we're trying to answer as to does those oil pla- do those oil platforms warrant our protection? And additionally, people are concerned sometimes when we're going around promoting this issue um, that perhaps we work for the big oil companies and then we're just trying to help out big oil. Um, But the reality of it is we've been diving on these platforms and we did our master's thesis on it at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Um, And we really do care about these oil platforms because we've seen the life that grows there. We understand how productive and valuable those structures are. Um, And so we really have this crusade of figuring out ways we can keep some of these structures in place. Can you elaborate a little bit on what an oil platform is for for listeners and how that converts into an artificial reef? Oil platforms are massive structures offshore that are producing oil and gas. Stuff you use in your cars, they help us to create plastics, turn on lights in our home. They're necessary because we all use the resources from offshore, but these platforms are from our beach chair, they just look like little dots on the horizon, like a boat going by or something like that. Mm-hmm. But below the surface, they have beams and cross beams that go all the way down to the seafloor. And it kind of looks like the scaffolding of a building. And they can be enormous, ranging from 80 feet down to 1,200 feet, if not deeper. Um, so imagine like the scaffolding of the Empire State Building. Yeah. What you see above the surface is just the tip of the iceberg. So below the surface, you have the, these complex networks of beams and cross beams, and that's what creates the artificial reef habitat that we are looking to preserve. How long do these oil platforms usually 
stay working platforms for the oil companies. So are there a lot of these that are decommissioned over time? Like, What's the life expectancy on one of them? Well, it, it depends on how productive the oil well is. So if they don't get as many barrels of oil as they'd like out of it, then decommissioning becomes um, reality much sooner. Um, in California, some of our structures are pretty old. They started putting them offshore in the 1970s. So California actually has some of the world's oldest oil platforms. Mm. Um, so they can really range. Some of them are only five years old all the way up to 30, 40 years old. So it just depends on how productive those wells are. And what's the alternative besides... So, so essentially, it's taking these platforms and breaking them down, almost putting them horizontally in the ocean, right, to keep that ecosystem alive. What would they do otherwise once the platform stops working? Well, when the platform stops, you know, it's at the end of its useful, productive life. If they're not going to refit, um, they will actually remove the entire jacket structure from the seafloor, um, plug and abandon all the wells, and cap and seal um, those wells as well, which is the same thing that they would do for reefing in terms of the wells. But the jacket is what we're talking about when they remove it and decommission it. And in the Gulf of Mexico, those things are usually taken on shore and recycled or scrapped. But in California, we don't have that option. You can't take those platforms on shore. Um, one, because our ports aren't large enough to handle them. But two, it's not legal to do it. So they would be placed on a derrick barge and towed um, across the ocean to an area like China or another country like that that would be willing to accept it and scrap the material. So in a, in a odd way, not only is it better for the ecosystems that kind of already exist on these oil platforms, but it's also probably more environmentally friendly than like lugging that thousands of miles away to take apart, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's not the case for every oil platform. So that's where we really come in and do a lot of our work is understanding which platforms make the best artificial reefs and which ones, by reefing them, do we actually enhance our environmental protection versus the alternative of completely removing them. So when all the these life forms grow under these oil platforms that are currently working, when when one becomes decommissioned and they do take it out of the ocean, what happens to that existing ecosystem? Is it does it collapse or does it kind of consolidate somewhere else? I just it's just interesting to think if you like removed an entire coral reef, what would happen to that mass of life? Yeah, well, when you remove the entire structure, the ecosystem goes with it. And so when they completely lift these structures out of the water column, all the fish life that's been associated with that is no longer going to be in that area. Fish are attracted to structure, um, whether that's a rocky coral reef or an oil platform or a sunken ship. And so the mobile species that can swim away might swim away to a nearby area and make that their new home. Mm -hmm. And all the invertebrate life or life that's been affiliated and, and um, that's stuck on the platform jacket itself, like scallops, mussels, anemones, those kind of species, they would all be removed from the water column. Interesting. Some of these must exist in places that coral reefs aren't natural parts of the ecosystem, right? What's interesting to me is it's almost like you're forming these ecosystems that haven't previously existed in the world. Is that the case in certain areas like California? Well, sort of. The way you can think about it is what you typically find on an offshore oil platform will be very similar to um, the environment that surrounds it. 
So the life that we see on California's platforms are very similar to rocky reef ecosystems that we have, or if there's seamounts offshore of California, very similar ecosystems. Mm -hmm. What makes them a little bit different is that in California and in other areas of these world, these platforms can be a couple miles offshore. So if there's not a seamount in the area, then in that sense, it's a bit unnatural to have this structure that's sticking up out of the sea floor. But it's kind of like its own little seamount. So you get the same sort of rocky reef species colonizing the structure. Same in the Gulf of Mexico. They've got a lot of the more tropical coral species, and those mm-hmm. are on the structures out there. And the North Sea, again, cold water environment, cold water species are attracted and produced on those structures. With coral in general, it's becoming obviously a big concern with global warming, climate change, the bleaching that even small degrees of temperature change can really destroy reefs at a massive percentage. Do you have any indicators yet as if to these almost uh, man-made reef structures would have more resistance to climate change than like a natural reef? Yeah, they've begun to do some research on that to better understand how resilient these artificial reefs can be to climate change and other anthropogenic impacts. And, you know, they're still very much in the beginning studies, and it's it's hard to really understand and fully, fully know. But there was one study done in the Gulf of Mexico that hypothesized that because these structures are actually covered by the platform that's above the surface, it creates a bit of shading on the reef. And mm. therefore, the reef area is slightly cooler than the surrounding natural reefs and therefore, you know, might be able to be more productive than uh, than the surrounding reefs. But that is just one study. There's still, you know, those kind of things need to be monitored over time to fully understand what that impact is. Interesting. I'd imagine just working in offshore drilling, et cetera, it's a heavily regulated environment. And I'm interested to know, like, what part of your life is like dealing with the bureaucracy of kind of sitting in an office, figuring this out and what percentage of your life is actually being able to dive and spend time in the ocean and working on these studies, et cetera. <laughs> oh, we're always <laughs> offshore. Really? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, oh, I was going to say that's surprising. Have you, haven't you seen our Instagram? <laughs> yeah. We're on the water <laughs> every day. Like we are, but I would say <laughs> probably like 80, 20, 20% of the time we get to be in the water diving these structures. But fortunately, we do a lot with ROV studies, so we can bring the, the, the reefs to us into our office and assess it from our desk chair. So it's not the same. It's not as exciting, but it's got to be done. Can you detail what an ROV study is? Yeah, so it's a remotely operated vehicle survey. A lot of oil companies routinely go down to evaluate the structural integrity of these platforms. And so what we've started doing is um, encouraging them to um, incorporate additional surveys, biological surveys, Mm -hmm. into their maintenance surveys so that we can start to gather ecological um, data on those structures and start to develop a baseline of what's out there. The beauty of using an ROV is that unlike a diver, you don't have the inherent risk because there's not, there's no people on board the ROV. It can stay down for however long you'd want it to. Um, it can go much deeper. We've done surveys down to 7,000 feet. 7,000 feet? What's <laughs> the craziest stuff you guys have seen on that footage? <sighs> We've seen really weird stuff. Yeah, they, <laughs> like alien species in the deep sea. A lot of them, because you think the deep, spe- the deep sea is characterized by no light, so it's totally dark, 
very cold temperatures and extreme pressures. So everything that's down there is often translucent and very unlike some of the species you would see on a coral reef or something more shallow. So, um, yeah, a lot of weird stuff down there. We've talked to some operators who said said they've seen like sharks or big mantas down there. And not at 7,000. Not at (laughs) 7,000. Those (laughs) are more. Yeah. Yeah, I used to follow this. I don't know if it was an Instagram account or a blog, but it was this guy in Scandinavia, or he was off the coast of Russia, somewhere over there. I guess that's not next to each other, but you get the point. Um, But he was a commercial fisherman, and they would do very deep sea like net um, captures, and he would pull up these like crazy looking fish from the depths. But not only did they look weird, but you multiply by that by the factor that once it becomes less of a pressurized environment they all of a sudden kind of expand into these big yeah. floppy masses. Yeah. But it's always shocking to see like what comes out of those the depths of the ocean. Yeah, really weird stuff, but really cool stuff. But I feel like it'd be fun. It's almost like droning underwater for yeah. periods of time. <laughs> it's yeah. exactly like that. Can you talk a little bit about like the backstory? I would imagine coming from a conservation biology background or a marine biology background that typically you'd view oil rigs is like the enemy and big energy is is the enemy in terms of that that to find a way to marry something that seems like the death star with <laughs> you, you know with with such a important conservation issue that really seemingly has a lot of legs and is is being very well received in the conservation community can you just talk about the genesis of this whole operation um well it started for me um right out of uh, college. I got a job working on the BP oil spill as a field tech, Mm -hmm. um, doing um, studies, gathering water quality samples and biota samples. And the fishermen that had lost their jobs as a result of the oil spill were hired to drive our boats around. And they would always just talk about how excellent the fishing was on these offshore platforms, which at the time to me seemed so bizarre because here we are cleaning up from an oil spill. And yet they're saying that's the best fishing in the Gulf of Mexico. Right. And that's when I first learned about the Rigs to Reach program, learned that these were actually successful habitats um, because in the Gulf of Mexico, they've been reefing their platforms for the last 30 years. They reef between 500 and 600 platforms. And from there, I went to Scripps where I met Amber in San Diego and I learned that California also had a rigs to reef law, but we hadn't reefed any of our platforms and it wasn't looking like we were going to. So that was kind of the start of our master's thesis, um, studying the feasibility of this program in California and beyond. Wait, there's 600 of them? Is that what you said? I assume there was like, like there was like three oil rigs out in California or something like that. It's There's hundreds of these. Well, we have 27 in California and there's hundreds in the Gulf of Mexico, but they've reefed between 500 and 600 in the Gulf of Mexico. Oh my God, that's insane. Yeah. I didn't know that. Most people don't. What was that experience like with the BP oil spill? To me, I always am confused when you think of how much oil was released in that terrible situation. Is it ever possible to clean all of that up and how did they do it? And like, what's the current state? Have you kept tabs on it? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that's challenging um, to be prepared for, I guess, Um, because the last major oil spill, as significant as that one, was the Exxon Valdez Mm -hmm. um, in Alaska in the late 80s. And then since then, nothing to that scale. And so when it happens in the Gulf of Mexico, one, it's a completely different environment, completely different currents um, and a different problem. One was an oil tanker and one was um, 
a well that essentially just exploded. Um, so in terms of being prepared for that, they essentially start to employ a variety of techniques. Um, the major ones that they were using were oil booms, um, mm-hmm. and that's to kind of corral the oil and prevent it from spreading. And then they also use this chemical called Corexit. Um, unfortunately, with Corexit, what it did is it actually it binds with the oil molecules, and it sank to the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico, creating this sort of bathtub ring. So although it's no longer visible, it's still part of that environment there. Mm-hmm. But what makes it even more challenging is that most people don't realize that oil is just constantly seeking from the seafloor naturally. So it's hard to discern what's from that spill versus what's naturally leaking in that area. And what are the long-term effects of Corexit? Because really it had never been used to that scale before. But it does make, you know, moving forward, what happens if that occurs again? Um, I'm not sure if what technology they would use or how they would change it, but it's definitely a steep learning curve. Following that spill, uh, the government really, really uh, honed down on their regulations and created new protocols and standards for every offshore operator to follow in terms of offshore development and decommissioning. And so the government really... Uh, has been careful moving forward to make sure that this kind of event never happens again. That seems surprising to me that they, so this corrects it, they didn't expect it to sink to the bottom? I think, well, the thing is you're testing it in a, versus testing it in a lab versus testing it in a real-time environment. There's all the different factors that go into play. The salinity levels in the water column, how hot or cold the water is, existing currents mm-hmm. within the water. There's only so much you can do to, and of course, you're not testing at that large of a scale. You might be testing it in a bathtub sort of scale, not the size of the BP oil. Right, scale. right. So I think scientists and you know manufacturers always do the best they can to test these types of things. But when you have an oil spill that occurs all of a sudden, you're going to go to the first material and the best material that you can find. And maybe you don't know the ultimate consequences at that time, but I think they were pretty much trying to figure out any way they could to stop that spill and stop the extent of it. What was the overall sentiment in the area at the time? I would imagine it was like a pretty sad place to spend a good chunk of time. Well, yeah, that area, it's it's a very interesting part of the world because so much of the economy down there in the Gulf states, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, Louisiana, is generated from offshore oil and gas, whether that means they're engineers or they work on the platforms or um, they're scientists or petroleum engineers. So much of that is connected in the Gulf. So mm-hmm. it's not like there was maybe, you know, in California, we only have 27. So there's not a lot, that much of a connection. So not only was there the people impacted that worked on these structures, but also the fishermen who fishing is just huge in the Gulf of Mexico. So they lost their ability to fish in some areas because of the scare of oil contaminating fish and shrimp and things like that. But it's, it's a resilient community down there. And I also think that for the most part, people accept that if you're going <laughs> to install massive offshore oil platforms, an oil spill is just always a risk no matter what. Yeah. So kind of walks hand in hand with doing that. I remember hearing recently that the U.S. government has kind of allowed for more or is loosening regulations on offshore drilling. Is that true? Or do you know what the state of it is currently? I couldn't tell you the specific regulations that they're repealing, but they are rolling them back um, under the current administration, um, mostly because a lot of the regulations that they put in place after the spill were 
costly to maintain. Mm -hmm. And there's this unique trend of larger offshore oil and gas operators moving away from the deep shelf in the Gulf of Mexico and smaller operators purchasing those assets. And obviously, if you're a smaller operator, you don't have the same financial um, portfolio that some of these larger ones do. So maintaining those stricter regulations becomes more challenging. Um, So I think in an effort to boost oil production um, out of the United States, those are starting to be rolled back, which is controversial. I think, I think those were good regulations that would be, that were put into <laughs> sounds, <laughs> sounds risky to me. Those. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, it's, it's too bad. Yeah. That does seem unfortunate. Are there any criticisms to, to the work that you guys do, like that you feel that are rooted in any truth? Like when you look at um, keeping these large structures in the ocean to create reefs. Are, are there any large pieces of backlash that people have? And do you think oh, that definitely. really, what are they mostly? Yeah, well, I would, well, I'll go over a few of them. Mm-hmm. The few, the, one of the first ones would be invasive species. So these different species that you might find on a structure that aren't native to the area And the major concern is that these platforms actually act as a stepping stone to connect invasive species over an area. So you might have like the invasive lionfish or orange Mm -hmm. coral in Florida, and then it can jump along all the ideas that these corals and these endangered or invasive species can can hop along the platforms and move all the way across the Gulf of Mexico using these platforms to to spread their species. And that's a major concern. There's been a lot of research done on this to try and determine if the oil platforms or if artificial structures are more susceptible to invasive species. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case. It ends up that just as these artificial structures mimic the natural environment in many other ways, it's the same with invasives. So they're spreading invasive species at the same rate that the natural reefs are. So it is an issue, but if we see it on our natural reefs, then we're going to see it on our, on any other type of artificial reef as well. So that's right. one major So the issue. idea being that it would be an easier way to connect them to new ecosystems or is it more that uh, because like a, a reef type ecosystem doesn't exist in these areas that it's a new type of ecosystem for these things to potentially get hold? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think it's more of a fear of them spreading it because there is similar type ecosystems in the form of seamounts. Um, right, but right. But if you're an oil platform and let's say there's a chain of you, yeah, I mean, the reality is it's just going to act like a normal reef. Just invasives would spread from natural reef to natural reef. They're going to do the same thing on oil platforms. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. The lionfish are a big deal everywhere, right? They're kind of taking over. Yeah, they are. Yeah, we've seen bunches of them in the Gulf of Mexico. What is the concern with them? Do they eat other fish? Is that the biggest problem? Yeah, they're a voracious predator and they just take over ecosystems and other fish can't compete and they don't really have a natural predator besides people going out and spearfishing them. So they can just take over an entire area. They're super ugly looking too. Like they're like a gnarly looking creature. (laughs) (laughs) They've got spikes and tiger stripes. They're cool. Yeah, I guess they are cool. 
I just when you hear invasive, you want to dislike it for some reason. Yeah. Um, so that that's one major criticism. What are, you mentioned there were a few. Um, yeah, you know, another criticism I think that we get is from a lot of pure conservation groups um, like uh, Greenpeace or Sea Shepherds. They get concerned because they want to go back to an ocean that existed a thousand years ago with no impacts from man or very limited impacts from man, um, a very pure environment. And inherently, keeping an oil platform in the environment is Mm -hmm. not pure. It's a man-made structure. It's connected to energy. It's connected to our desire for oil. And that's a major criticism, I think, that we get a lot of the times. It's just, it's not natural. And they're right, it's not natural. But more so, we try to advocate that, but it's doing a good job as a reef. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we have to, I think not everything can be a good artificial reef. And just like Amber mentioned, these have to be assessed on a case-by-case basis. But where they are proven to be um, productive and functioning in a way that's healthy, we advocate for we're losing our reefs by the hundreds every single day. So why don't we try and advocate for the creation of more reefs mm-hmm. uh, as long as it's done in a way that's healthy for the environment? Yeah, and it seems like you guys are studying it too pretty intensely to make sure yeah. that all those assumptions are correct. I think to me... I mentioned this a lot on the podcast, but the reason I gravitate towards podcasts as a uh, a medium in general is just because it's the one form of media that I'm able to take in now that has dialogues about l- like long form understanding situations and understanding issues. And I think because everything has become so sensationalized and it's all based on headlines that are clickbait, et cetera, I think people tend to gravitate towards what seems to be the most compassionate thing to do. Like for me, if I saw rig to reef as a headline, I'd be like, Oh, I don't know. That seems a little sketchy. It seems like something you have to dig into and understand a little bit more. And I think, I think the same way is to like hunting. Like I I used to always be like hunting is the worst thing in the world who could ever kill an animal. But then when I compare it side by side with uh, big beef, which is probably one of the worst like industries for the environment in general, I start to understand it a little better and it makes more sense. So to your point, I think everybody wants things to be exactly how they were before, but I don't know if that's necessarily an option. And I think you need to start thinking, well, I know it's not an option. So I think you need to start thinking creatively about solutions that will work in the current environment, because as much as there weren't oil platforms in the ocean hundreds of years ago, there also were 70% 70% less people. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just, it's just a totally different situation. So it's, no, inter- we it's completely interesting. Agree. Uh, we're completely in alignment with you on that. And uh, people forget that some of the greatest conservationists, like you said, were hunters. Um, the guy that runs Patagonia is one of the greatest conservationists today. And he is a hunter. He's a fly fisherman. I think what he understands is that you have to work together to move forward in a way that's productive and sustainable. They're just now you're never going to get everybody to think the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Um, there are opportunities to work together. And when it comes to oil, I would say the majority of the population has a deep distrust of oil. And that's very rational. <laughs> you know, some of the worst environmental disasters of all time were connected to oil. Um, so they get really get a bad rap because of that. So if you hear that these oil platforms are also reefs, you're definitely not going to believe it. So you see it or you start to learn more and dive deeper into the issue. So I definitely agree when it comes to repurposing the platforms as reefs. To me, that just seems like it makes so much sense. To me, what my inherent concern would be is that 
somehow oil as an industry is obviously something that hopefully is going to be somewhat antiquated as time goes on. And they do have a bad reputation amongst the general population. I think, um, particularly in the conservation community and rightfully so, um, do you feel any obligation or concern about somehow providing a, or greenifying a companies like oil and maybe giving them somewhat more of a social good reputation? Is that a concern at all? D- does that question make sense? Yeah, I think that especially in this topic of rigs to reefs, that oil companies can be can come across as greenwashing. Mm-hmm. That's the official term for you know appearing to be doing something good for the environment to cover up all of the negative impacts that you've potentially had on the environment. And the oil companies are very aware of that perception. So in many cases, they are not publicly, you know, touting rigs to reefs or trying to convince people that it's a good idea because they don't want to be perceived as greenwashing. And they're very aware that that's how it would be Um, how it would be perceived. And so that's kind of where a lot of our work stems from is using the science and visual media and a positive message to try and change the tide of public perception around the Riggs to Reef program. And coming from a non-oil company perspective, hopefully we can gain the respect of our audience and actually see some change in thought. Is it a... Is it a situation where you almost hope at some point in time that all the oil platforms out there are reefs and no longer operating? <laughs> yeah, that is something <laughs> we have thought about that, um, especially if we could be able to create them as permanent marine protected areas. So not only have them be reefed, but also have some sort of long-term protection. That would be that would be excellent. And the Rig Reef program tries to facilitate that by giving the structure, the the part that is below the surface to the state to manage as they would any other artificial reef. So the state mm-hmm. takes on that liability and will manage that structure. Whereas the well itself, so the well where they've drilled into the ocean floor and they've been drilling and extracting um, oil and gas, that well remains the liability of the oil company that drilled it in perpetuity. So should there ever be a leak or any incident with that well, they're always liable to come in and um, come in and repair any damage that's been done. And I, I know you guys have a consultancy as well. What kind of work do you guys do with the oil companies uh, outside of repurposing them as reefs? Like what types of scientific studies are you guys working on? Well, we do um, kind of all aspects of it. Like Amber mentioned, not every oil platform is a good candidate for a reef. So Mm -hmm. what one of our studies could be is to go out and assess um, the viability of that platform structure as a reef. Or we go down and we'll start to develop a baseline for those structures so that they can understand that when it comes to time to decommission, um, what their options are in terms of reefing or not reefing. We also do um, environmental regulatory reviews. Um, we've also worked with non-oil and gas entities. Mm-hmm. We did the biological study for some um, art installations that went off of Catalina Island. I saw that. That was crazy. Yeah, yeah. Super so cool. if it's offshore, we try and put our hand on it. We're trying to expand into offshore wind. That's our next big goal. We want to be able to work the same way we work with oil companies. We'd love to be able to work with offshore wind. 
And is that a similar situation, right? I would imagine that the structure could be repurposed in the same way. Yeah. Exactly. But the energy is a lot better. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, I remember thinking I grew up uh, on Cape Cod and they had this big project they were proposing off the coast of Nantucket to put a massive wind farm in there. And yeah. everybody was talking about the, the the eyesore that it could potentially be. But now thinking of it through a different lens, it could be create this really cool ecosystem over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have yeah. They, do they have any examples of um, like big wind farms like that working as reefs currently? There hasn't been as many studies on it. Um, I think people are starting to recognize their potential, um, but not. there hasn't been that much information published on it. In the North Sea, they've done a little bit more looking at them in terms of providing habitat for um, mussels, blue mussels there. Um, but I know the East Coast is definitely the next big area to have this happen. Mm-hmm. And there hasn't been as much as we would like, I guess we could put it that way. Yeah. What drew you guys to the ocean in the first place? Did you grow up in California on the coast? Was it, I mean, I, I grew up, like I said, in, uh, Cape Cod and I summered down in Woods Hole where the Oceanographic Institute is. And I remember as a kid, I always wanted to be a marine biologist and then just never went through with it. Um, was that, was it a lifelong dream, kind of a calling to the ocean or is it something that developed later? Uh, for me, same thing. I'm actually originally from the East coast too. I'm from uh, New Hampshire. Oh, wow. Up on a tiny Island off there, Newcastle Island. And so Mm -hmm. the, for me, the ocean was always in my backyard and my dad was a big scuba diver. So he got my family all involved in it. And an uncle that worked at, at Woods Hole as well and did oh, cool. an internship down there at the MBL. So for me, it was, I've just always been drawn to the ocean. And did I know I was going to grow up and I always dreamed of saving oil platforms? Definitely not. But I always <laughs> that I wanted to be involved in working with the ocean somehow. Oh, that's awesome. I always knew I was going to save oil platforms. <laughs> that's what I was born to do. <laughs> no, I grew up in California. Uh, the ocean was my was my backyard as well, and it yeah drawn me in, and and uh, I've always wanted to just learn more. So I've continued to study it and enjoy it and protect it, and that's that's what drew me to it. Do you have a favorite moment underwater where you either? experience something that you didn't expect to ever experience or you're just very thankful for the the work that you're able to do oh we have so many good underwater stories (laughs) (laughs) what kind of story are you looking for i i mean i gravitate more towards the wildlife did you ever i mean an interaction with a sea lion or something like that maybe the what about the manta yeah, we, we, we had a manta ray in the Gulf of Mexico, the flower garden banks come and literally like play with us while we were diving. They love the feeling of the bubbles from your regulator on their stomachs. So wow. it was just being around us and swimming all over the place. And it was so spectacularly beautiful. It was a really cool experience. Mantas are crazy in the sense that you look at them and it's very hard to, it's just something you never would attribute like a ton of intelligence to, I feel like aesthetically, but mm-hmm. they're supposedly among the smartest, most intelligent, sentient beings in the world. I mean, I just read this study recently that they're the first fish to be able to like be self-aware, like it recognizes itself in a mirror, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And I mean, just talking to some of the folks that have been on the podcast, um, their interactions with manta rays have been like outstanding. So it's something I'm like dying to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. How about whales? Have you ever come across a whale? 
underwater. Well, we're planning an expedition um, next October to the kingdom of Tonga, where you can swim with humpback whales. And that's um, where the, the babies are too, right? The calves? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like Hawaii. They go down there and they um, breed and give birth. And um, we're planning an expedition down there. Nothing to do with oil platforms. Um, but kind of, it's a unique area where they actually used to hunt whales up until the late 1970s. And now they've totally transitioned to being a culture that's embraced these humpback whales. So we're going down there to um, research it and see what it's all about. That's awesome. I'm super jealous of that. That's like my biggest dream in the world. <laughs> Stay tuned. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> what do you think is, view as some of the biggest pressures that the oceans are facing right now? And if you could see your work developing, uh, past the reefs to like where you'd like to spend a lot of your attention and focus or where somebody else should be looking to help support? Oh, that's such a good question. I think that there are many areas in our ocean that are needing protection and attention and that a lot of people focus on those few areas that are still relatively pristine and they want to go and understand what makes them so beautiful and captivating and how can we save these one special areas. Mm -hmm. And what I would encourage other people who are looking to get involved with ocean conservation is to look outside those areas and see those areas that are being impacted by overfishing, runoff, pollution, um, how can we look at those environments and offer them solutions to make them more sustainable and perhaps help them rebound the ecosystems? Because the ocean is surprisingly resilient and powerful. I mean, if you can have life grow on the base of an oil platform into some of the most productive ecosystems on the planet, uh, the ocean can really rebound and be resilient in a lot of different ways if we give it the time and space to do so. So I, I encourage people to kind of look outside of those areas uh, that are pristine and potentially find something else to invest their time in. Yeah. I, I'm always encouraged. I had a conversation with Sean Heinrichs, who's part of the Sea Legacy Collective. And he was talking about how he works with creating a lot of these marine protected areas, particularly in Indonesia and the Maldives and, um, he was saying that the level to which the populations regrow when they're just left to sit for themselves and not be overfished or not have any kind of uh, human influence coming in, it's it's much quicker than you'd ever expect an area like that to rebound. So I yeah. think in a world that's filled with a lot of doom and gloom and sadness about conservation, it's always something that I'm able to point to is is something to be optimistic about is that when we do start taking more and more steps towards protecting these areas and reserving these areas that it is something that can rebound rather quickly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like that. I want to go into a couple rapid fire questions here quickly. Um, one, what is your favorite wildlife documentary? Uh, blue planet. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say planet earth. Those are two good ones. I'm a big fan of those as well. How about book? Any books you would recommend listeners? Um, I read a lot of really, really weird books. Me too. Are you sure you want the immediate question? <laughs> well, well, wildlife book, I guess I would. Wildlife book? Yeah. Susan Casey, Voices in the Ocean. 
she stole that from me. She hasn't even finished that book. Wow, yet. that's cold. <laughs> um, there, I, I, one of my favorite animals is the octopus, and there's a lot of really good books out there. And I'm reading this one. I'm trying to remember the title of it. It's like the octopus are like mine. Mysteries, isn't it mystery? No, it's like octopus. I'll give give me a second. I'll I'll pull it up for you. While you're doing that, I'm gonna link in the show notes for listeners. There's a video of an octopus I saw that was caught on a boat and it literally squeezed its way out through like a big octopus through an opening in the boat that couldn't have been more than like a quarter inch thick. It was one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Yeah. They just need to be the size of their eye. Is that what it is? Yeah. It's like, that's an insane concept to think about. So a really good book. I found it. It's called other minds, the octopus, the sea and the deep origins of conscious. And it's so interesting. Octopuses are really, really interesting because their intelligence and their whole entire physiology evolved completely separate of human beings, but they're almost as intelligent, if not close to more intelligent than humans. They've got more brain synapses in their neural cortex than almost any other species on the planet. But they're like completely different than humans. They evolved in a completely different way. So they're really interesting. Yeah. Do they have any close relative? I guess the squid, are they considered like, what is the closest relative to an octopus? They seem so different than everything else. Like squid, cuttlefish, um, mollusks. They're all mollusks, really. So they're all relative. So I wouldn't really want to compare the intelligence of a clam to an octopus. Right. They're related. I saw another video, not to just keep talking on a podcast about videos I've seen, but of a cuttlefish pretending to be a fit, like, it like mimicked the shape of a fish. And then when something else came up to it, it scared it real quick and ate it. Have you ever seen that yeah. video? It's yeah, yeah, crazy. Yeah. I mean, but that's what I'm talking about. Those like types of intelligences are, I'm going to read that book. Sounds super interesting. It is. There's actually a really cool video. I think it was on there on planet earth or blue planet where the cuttlefish, a smaller male imitated a female so that this big male that was trying to have mate with this female cuttlefish wouldn't chase it away because it thought it was another female. And so it tricked the bigger male and went in and mated with the female. That's and it was super like interesting. so smart and like intelligent that it blows my mind. Like the fact that it thought about that, recognized its size and like made a play like that. Just it's crazy. Yeah, that's awesome. I had a similar experience um, this past winter. I was in New York City and my sister and I were sitting on a bench and there was this big, massive pigeon that had to be the size of like a football. And he was chasing the females around, and the females clearly wanted nothing to do with him. They were like running away. And my sister and I were looking and felt really bad for the lady. So I interjected. I was like, bro, they're, they're not interested. You've got, to, <laughs> you've got to get away. And I scared him away to leave the ladies alone. I think um, I might have been scared of a pigeon that big. It was, it was, yeah, it was massive. No, it's something interesting too. This is completely off topic, but have you ever seen a baby pigeon before? No. That's like that's a new thing I've been talking about with my friends is the fact that you've never you never see baby pigeons. Um, and the reason is apparently they nest in very like um, like nooks and crannies of places, so you never get to see a pigeon, even though you see pigeons everywhere in the city. Um, anyways, that's completely off topic. Next up, how about favorite? Nonprofit, I think for a lot of listeners who want to get involved in conservation that want to put their money to good use, but don't necessarily know where the best places are to donate. Do you have any recommendations, particularly marine based if possible? Um, I'm a big fan of Save Our Seas Foundation. I think they do a really good job of working with different photographers and videographers to 
cap- capture people's imagination about the oceans um, and capture their imaginations on things that are not necessarily the most flashy or glamorous parts of the ocean. Um, but I would say that's my favorite. And my favorite would be the Weight Foundation. They work on projects that engage locals to and empowers them with different tools to make their livelihood more sustainable. And they do a lot of education and stuff like that. So in these areas around the world where people maybe don't realize the value of their ocean resource or know or know what tools to use to protect it, the Weight Foundation goes in, helps them with these tools, gives them the education and empowers the local people to protect the resource that's in their backyard. That's so, cool. Is that W-A-I-T? Uh, W-A-I-T-T. T-T. Okay, cool. And my last major question, if you could <laughs> put a billboard on the side of the highway that disseminated one message in 10 words or less, what would that be? Oh, that's easy. I would just put a big oil platform and do it cut in half. It's like the top's all oil and gross and the bottom's a reef and you could just oh, say like, think good. different. Wow. I like so that. So good. <laughs> Can I, can I, that's, I, I still that one too. It's yeah, a that's great. You got to get that on the <laughs> website. I feel like that's fantastic. And, and lastly, where can people check out your work and support the work? You can find us on social media, Instagram at Rigs to Reef Explorers, Twitter and Facebook, Rig to Reef Explore, Rig to Reef Exploration. And we have a website, rig to reef exploration.org. And that's with the number two, rig number two, reef exploration.org. And, and then our petition. We also have a collaboration with Patagonia where we have put together a petition. And you can go onto Patagonia Action Works if you just Google Patagonia Action Works Blue Latitudes. And you can sign a petition that would help to get some of our platforms here in California reefed. And this petition lets our legislators know that reefing in California is something that their constituents want as a viable decommissioning option. Because right now, it's not quite viable. So there needs to be a few tweaks, a couple legislative moves in order to make that happen. And so we're trying to rally those who care about this issue to sign the petition and join in on the movement. I love that. Awesome. (laughs) Well, I'll link all of that in the show notes for people listening. Thank you both for coming onto the podcast. I'm a big fan of the work that you're doing. I think in general, uh, you couldn't be thinking more outside of the box and in the world we live in now, I think that's really important when it comes to conservation and some of the pressures that the conservation world is up against. So thank you for all that you do. And to everybody, until next time, stay wild. Thank you so much for listening. I honestly cannot express how much I appreciate you taking the time for all information regarding this episode's guest, social channels, books, how you can support, etc please check out our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast. We are everywhere that you can find podcasts. Subscribe to Escape the Zoo on YouTube, follow Escape the Zoo on Instagram, like Escape the Zoo on Facebook, and please share with your friends. It honestly goes so far and means so much to me. And lastly, if you'd like to be emailed with each new podcast and any other major Escape the Zoo updates, visit escapethezoo.tv and sign up for our email list. Thank you.